and howdy. howdy. So great. I had bacon this morning, if you catch my drift. That was a pretty good little game yesterday. But hey, guys, my name is Benjamin Pinkerson. I'm the college pastor here at our Anderson campus of Grace Bible Church. And it is always a pleasure and a privilege to come and get to be over here on Main Side, uh, where I sat as a college student. I actually went to both college service and Main service every week and just has so much relationships with families and adults that, that discipled and poured into me. And so I get to stand here today as a, as a witness of discipleship making processes here at Grace Bible Church. So as I was thinking about uh, this morning, I was thinking about how all of us love stories of long-term faithfulness, of loyalty. Uh, we love the long-term stories of people who keep their commitments and, and keep their word. Right? I think uh, one, one of my heroes in my life uh, was my pop, was my grandfather named uh, Charles. I named my daughter Charlie after him. Right? My, my pop and my granny were married for 62 years, 11 months, and 10 days. And I still think of that as a, as a story of, of empowering me to, to walk in faithfulness after the life of my granny and my pop. I think about stories of athletes that, that take pay cuts so that they can stay loyal to their teams. Right? I think about Dirk Nowitzki. I grew up in Dallas, and, and he was a 12-time All-Star, and he got offered max contracts from the Houston Rockets and the L.A. Lakers, and he turned them down and took a 65% pay cut, $72 million, to stay with the Mavericks through his entire career. Uh, earlier this year, in fact, in, in July, there was a guy named Larry Pointer in Lexington, Kentucky, who was celebrated for working at a Ford company for 50 years. They had the mayor come out and literally gave this guy a plaque and called it Larry Pointer Day in Kentucky because 50 years of faithfulness to one company. Some of you might have heard of the story of Hachiko, right, an Akita or a breed of dog that, that was, was taken uh, by a professor and every day the professor in Japan, he would go to the train station and Chico would go with his, his owner and he, was, he would go to that train station and, and the professor would go to work and Chico would go home, but then he would come back in the evening to wait for his professor to come back and get him. And he did this every day until one day in, in, the, early night, in the early 2000s, uh, the professor had a cerebral hemorrhage and died at work and Chico for nine years, continued this process of going to the train station in the morning and then coming home. He became actually a symbol of faithfulness in Japan. We love stories like that of, of just of faithfulness, of, of people that keep their commitment or, or stay tied to their career or, or, or they're focused on their family and it's a long-term loyalty. And we especially like it today in our time because it's just really rare. It's rare to see long-term faithfulness and loyalty, people that keep their word. Marriages often do not last for 60 years. Athletes often go in college or in the pros to where the money's at, right? They leave. My generation is known in the workforce for job hopping every two years, leaving the company, going somewhere else where maybe the grass is greener. And dogs... Well, well, dogs are still 
perfect, okay? They're still faithful. You go get a dog, okay? Uh, but the point is all of this raises a question for us. As we've been studying the book of Revelation and we get to this moment where the wrath of God is being poured out in judgment on the earth and on the wickedness of the earth. Last week covering Revelation 6, this, the first six seals are opened. God's wrath is being poured out. And we have to ask the question, in the midst of this wrath, in the midst of this judgment, will God remain faithful to his promises? Will God remain faithful to his people? Will he scratch it all and say, let's start over? Will he forget about the promises he made in the Old Testament to his people to preserve? What is God going to do in the midst of this, this, this wrath? Today, I, I just wanna start off by saying the big idea because I hope that if nothing else, you walk away knowing this about our God in Revelation chapter seven. Revelation chapter seven, I don't know if the clicker's working. God is faithful, not only to his people, but to his promises. God is faithful to his people and his promises. Go ahead and turn with me now to Revelation chapter seven if you have your Bibles. Revelation chapter seven. Now again, as I said earlier, last week we discussed Revelation chapter six. Here's a little chart for you guys, but Brian covered chapter six, which is the opening of the first six seals. We are currently in the great tribulation, that seven years in between the church age and the millennial kingdom. That there's these seven years that, that God is pouring out his wrath and judgment on the earth for two reasons. One, he's judging wickedness, he's judging the nations, but two, he's purifying Israel. He's purifying Israel. And if you remember nothing else about the tribulation period, other than yes, the purpose is to judge the nations and to purify Israel, remember this, seals, trumpets, bowls. Seals, trumpets, bowls, right? Actually really not a, a great thing. It seems really exciting. It's not. Uh, seals, trumpets, and bowls are all judgments and they're only getting worse. The first six seals are, are horrible. Well, the seventh seal is actually the trumpets and the trumpets are terrible. And the seventh trumpet is actually the bowls and the bowls, well, it's cataclysmic, it's horrifying. Uh, pretty much almost everyone is going to die. That's tribulation. God is judging wickedness on the earth and also purifying Israel. But the thing about last week that was interesting is we only really learned from chapter six about the first six seals. What about the seventh seal, the trumpets? Well, in this moment in chapter seven, there's a pause in the narrative. There's, there's a new vision that comes to John. Before the seventh seal is opened, there's this moment that, that John sees a couple different scenes. It's kind of like in this moment, uh, uh, a play. And you have these amazing scenes that happen. It's majestic and wonderful. And all of a sudden the curtains close. And maybe someone comes out to explain something that maybe you don't realize currently. 
in the midst of what's happening, let me stop and shut the curtain to explain to you what you might be missing or what's happening or what's going on in the background, behind the scenes. That's chapter seven. It's a pause before chapter eight where we get back to the seventh seal and the trumpets. Okay. So go ahead, look at chapter seven, verse one with me. We're just gonna go through this and I'm gonna explain some things. We'll keep moving. Chapter seven, verse one says this. After this, right? After this, this moment of the six seals, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Chapter six, it's dangerous and there's seals. And then chapter seven, it's, it's quiet. The wind is being held back. The wind is an imagery of typically in scripture, God's judgment on evil. Look at Hosea 13, 15, talking about the judgment of God on the Northern kingdom of Israel's capital, Samaria. It says this, even though he flourishes like a reed plant, Samaria, a scorching east wind will come. A wind from the Lord rising up from the desert. And as a result, his spring will dry up. His well will become dry. That wind will spoil all his delightful foods in the containers in his storehouse. Although this wicked nation and this wicked city was seeming to be prosperous, God's judgment was coming. But in this moment in chapter seven of Revelation, the wind is being held back. Judgment is all of a sudden being held back in between the sixth seal and the seventh seal. What's going on? Read with me verses two and three. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their forehead. Again, an angel rising from the east. Well, actually in scripture, typically the east denotes God's deliverance and where it's coming from. So this angel rising from the east with the blazing sun, what does he have in his hand? He has a seal, but no, not that type of seal guys got him, right? Not, or, 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 not that seal, but in fact, this type of seal, right? A seal that stamps or marks whose you belong to. Ownership, authentication. And maybe you don't grasp this picture. Many of you might grasp this picture. Cattle branding. <laughs> there we go. Welcome to Texas, right? First century slaves typically were branded by a tattoo or a brand on their body to mark whose they were. Cattle branding, what's the purpose? It's designed to identify the owner of the animal so that if that animal gets lost or someone tries to steal this animal, people will know whose animal belongs to. So all of a sudden you see these people being sealed, being given a seal, being told that they are, belong to someone. They belong to someone. So there's this moment that, that, that God says, he holds back judgment. This guy comes to seal 
people. Ezekiel 9, 4 through 5 is a picture of this. The Lord said to him, pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in the temple. And to the others, he said, in my hearing, pass through the city after the sealing is taken place and strike. That somehow judgment is coming and people are going to be wiped out. It's gonna be horrifying. It's gonna be ugly. It's gonna be terrifying. And yet there's going to be people marked as people of God, marked on their forehead, and they will be protected. If you're secure and if you're marked, if you're sealed, you'll be delivered. You'll be protected in full. See, up to this point in tribulation, we're about halfway through the tribulation. This moment comes talking about the second half of the seven years. Because the second half of the seven years is when the trumpets and the bowls are gonna come. And those are, are so much worse, actually, than even the seals that we just read about in chapter six. And yet, if you were to even go into Revelation nine, you would see that these people are, are going to be protected. They're gonna be protected. They're gonna be marked as, as God's servants. And, and so I just love to think, first off, about this is the one thing that we're seeing about the character of our God, See, God does not change. And in fact, if you look at history, if you look through the Bible, you'll see God continuously does this. This is one of the reasons we believe in the pre-tribulation rapture. We believe that the church will be raptured, taken up into heaven and with God during the tribulation because one reason God's been doing this throughout history, Genesis chapter six through eight God sends a flood on the earth, but he seals Noah and his family from the rest of the human race so that they won't receive judgment. Genesis 19, God comes to Lot and his family and he seals them, protects them. The fires that were gonna come down on Sodom and destroy the city, he actually protects them from the terrible judgment. Exodus chapter 12, God seals the firstborn of, of Israelites. Because when the angel of death comes through and kills the firstborn, anyone that had marked their, their doorpost with the blood of the sacrificial lamb, they were sealed, thus protected from God's judgment. Joshua chapter two and six, God seals Rahab. When the people come in and destroy Jericho, God takes his people that were faithful and he protects her and her family. God has been doing this throughout history. And in this moment, he's doing it again. He's sealing and protecting and delivering his people. If you go to the New Testament, you'll even see that's how the, how the Holy Spirit is described in his act with us, that the Holy Spirit get, seals us and guarantees us deliverance, protection, that we are a part of God's family. God is in the business of protecting people from calamity, keeping them safe, even when they don't deserve it. That is one aspect of the faithfulness of our God. Well, in this chapter, uh, who's getting this seal? Because we just talked about a couple different examples of people getting sealed by God. Who is being sealed in this chapter, chapter seven? Go ahead and read with me verse four. It says this. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 
Who are the 144,000? Well, it's 12,000 from all the tribes of Judah, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, Simeon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin. That 144,000 ethnic Israelites will be protected from the second half of the tribulation. I want you to think about the implications of this moment. See, some people might argue that this is the church, that the 144,000 are the church, but well, one, the church is raptured before the tribulation happens, but, but two, there's a lot of reasons we believe this is truly ethnic Israelites because Israel and the church in the New Testament are never once used synonymously. Another reason we believe this is that, that John distinguishes this group very differently than he does in the second half of even this chapter, a, a number too innumerable to count. But this moment, I'm gonna count them and I'm gonna tell you, they're, they're, they're sons of Jacob. They're from the tribe of Israel, the tribes of Israel. But the third reason we believe this is actually Israelites is because we believe that God is faithful to his people and to his promises. You see, I wanna give you a quick history lesson from the Old Testament. God appears to Abram, who becomes Abraham, and he promises him the Abrahamic covenant. God makes a promise. And he says that I will ultimately give you a land that I will show you. I will give you a great nation, and I will give you a seed or an inheritance or a descendant. And that through that seed, that descendant, I will bless the entire world. That's Genesis chapter 12. That's the Abrahamic covenant. That's God making a promise, land, seed, and blessing. And then later, you know, that was 2000 BC, around 1000 BC, God appears to King David, 2 Samuel chapter seven. And he says, I will appoint a place for my people, Israel. He says, I will give you an offspring who will rule. I will establish his kingdom. His kingdom will be everlasting. It will, it will never pass away. That, that God promises two men, two Israelites, some specific things. He says, I will give you land, seed, and blessing. I will give you a king and a kingdom. And on that king, I will give ultimate authority forever. Well, Israel has never had that king over the land that was ascribed to him in Genesis chapter 12. So either God was lying or he just hasn't done it yet. Well, when we get to the New Testament, all of a sudden the church is born, Acts chapter two, the spirit of God descends on the people in the day of Pentecost. The church is born and the question then comes up, well, what's God gonna do with Israel? Are they just replaced by the church? Romans 11 addresses this. I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. They're hard-hearted. They don't believe. Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. God has made a promise. He's made many promises to Israel. But in this moment, they don't have the land, they don't have the eternal king, and they don't have that eternal throne and authority there. But we believe that it's going to happen because God is faithful to his people and to his promises. 
See, in this moment, the 144,000 people, remember, the church is raptured. People who believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins as the Savior and as God, they're raptured, they're gone from the earth right when the tribulation begins. So who are these 144,000 ethnic Jews? They're people that were not believing in Jesus before the tribulation started. 144,000 people come to faith from ethnic Jews And they believe and God seals them and says, I will protect them from the second half of the tribulation. They're actually the people that will walk into the millennial kingdom on earth because they're protected from the trumpets and the bowls. These ethnic Jews are a witness of the character of God. God is not through with his promises to Israel. God is not through. See, I think about this moment that, that God is, he keeps his word and he's faithful to his people, his promises. And I thought about, uh, about a little over eight years ago, I was, I was ring shopping, right, for my wife. And, and I remember going and looking at diamonds. And every single time I went to look at a diamond, they would take all these cool lights and shine it from different ways. And they'd always put the diamonds with the backdrop of a black cloth, See, when I looked at this diamond with the backdrop of a black cloth, because there was darkness behind it and because how the light hit the diamond, I could see so much more clearly the color and the carrot and the clarity and all the other expensive things that go into diamonds, right? But I would look at this diamond and because of the backdrop of darkness, I could see the good and the brightness within the diamond. I think there's a beautiful moment happening in the tribulation that with the backdrop of judgment and wrath being poured out on wickedness, we're somehow seeing God's character of faithfulness so much more bright because it's in the middle of the tribulation that he's saving thousands and thousands of people. God is in the business of bringing life and showing hope, especially in the darkest of times. Just look at church history. The thing is that, that it's not just talking about ethnic Jews and the Israelites that will be sealed in this moment. The passage is gonna go on to show the faithfulness of God. I want you to read now with me chapter seven. Let's start at verse nine. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures And they fell on their faces before the throne and they worshiped God saying, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever, amen. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? I said to him, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. See, this is a different group of people than these 144,000 sealed ethnic Jews that are saved and preserved through the tribulation. 
This is an innumerable multitude from every nation, every tribe, every tongue, all these people together worshiping God, standing in the presence of the Father, Son, and Spirit. This group is dressed in white robes. Ironically, they, they have white robes on because the blood of the lamb was slain on their behalf and they came to faith in the lamb, in Jesus, in the middle of the tribulation. They believed in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins and God saved them. He didn't save them from physical death though, they're dead. But now that they've died, they're with Jesus in the throne room, praising God They're holding palm branches in their hands. There's only one other time in the New Testament palm branches are displayed. The triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem on a donkey who is going to be slain on the cross. And in that moment, they're yelling, Hosanna, save us. But in this moment, they're standing before Jesus, the lamb, and they're yelling, Salvation has indeed come to us. A beautiful picture of these palm branches representing God's faithfulness. See, God has a plan and a promise that he has made and it hasn't just been to the ethnic Jews. Remember the Abrahamic covenant, Genesis chapter 12? I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. He's talking to Abram and he says, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Psalm 22, 27, all the earth, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations will bow down before him. 47, one, clap your hands, all you nations, shout to God with cries of joy. 96, three, declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among all people. Isaiah For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And in that day, the root of Jesse, who is Jesus, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. The time is coming together, all nations, and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory. I'm trying to get you to grasp the picture. This has been the plan from the beginning. He was given authority, the son of man, Jesus, who sits at the right hand of the almighty God. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshiped him. Matthew 28, Jesus on the scene gives a mission to his witnesses, his disciples. And he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. The next thing he tells his followers, Acts 1.8, you will receive power from the Holy Spirit and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. God's plan has been that all people will worship him. There is a beauty and diversity. 
See, before the throne of Jesus, all tongues, nations, tribes, all people groups will be at that place. And because of that diversity, there is more worship and glory ascribed to God. It's a beautiful picture. It's why in Philippians chapter two, we talk about Jesus, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And now we get to this moment in Revelation seven. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and people and languages standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes. See, God has made a promise that he wants to deliver all people. It actually says in scripture that God does not desire anyone to perish. God delights in relationship with us, which is just crazy. And he's been saving people from the beginning. These are promises. This will happen. God is faithful to his people and to his promises. I remember this clicking for me in seminary. I was taking a missions class. And I remember them just talking about, about people groups and unreached people groups and, and about how many people were sending to the nations reaching unreached people groups specifically and how much materials are being sent to unreached people groups and it broke my heart. And I remember this moment that, that God just started to kind of nudge me with this question that I had never really considered. And the question was this, have you ever considered going to the nations? A really simple question for me. And I remember saying to God, no, I've never even considered if you're asking me to go. And this was a long time into my Christian journey. I had never once even asked that question. I'd never said what A.W. Tozer says. He says that, God, I'll be willing to go anywhere at any time to do anything for you. I wasn't in that place. And I can't help but think that maybe a part of this passage is showing that these things will happen. God is going to bring all the nations to himself. I think the question that he's asking us is not, will I do it and you have to do it or it won't happen type deal. I think what he's saying is this, will you participate in what I'm doing? This will take place and I'm inviting you to be a part of my mission. And we know that in obedience, we receive intimacy. That if we follow after God's heart and we ask those hard questions at times, God, I know you're doing this. I know it's scary, but you're going to do it. And I want to be and do whatever you ask me to do. So maybe this morning, just looking at the character of God encourages us to think, God, maybe you're asking me to do something, to be a part of the promise that you are bringing all people to yourself. What, what would you have me do? Obviously, you can go, you can send also, we have the nations here. If you haven't noticed, there's people from so many different nations here in this room, but also in this city through Texas A&M and Blinn. Maybe the question for you this morning is, God, what are you asking me to do to participate in your promise? And I love that he doesn't just end it, verse 15. Let's go ahead and read the last part, 15 through 17. This is the picture of, of all of these people who have been slain in the tribulation. 
They're at the throne, and, and this is what it says. Therefore, they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eye. I want you to think about the first century Middle Eastern ears hearing this. They desperately want shade from the scorching sun. They desperately want to be provided for. What God is saying is all of the needs that you have, they, they will be met. That all of the pain and the sorrow and the, and, the, and the challenges that you've experienced that have broken and hurt you, all of those things are wiped away in the presence of the lamb. And, and he quotes Isaiah, he quotes you know, chapter 49 and chapter 25, all of this to try and show us the picture of being in the presence of Jesus is, is like a shepherd who comes and leads you beside still waters and provides for you and anoints your head with oil, right? Psalm 23, he guides us to springs of living water. What's ironic is the lambs are typically the ones being taken care of by the shepherd, but actually we are protected and taken care of by the lamb. That Jesus is the lamb of God who, who gave himself up on our behalf. He was the blood shed on the doorpost. He was the one that, that provided us a way to have salvation. And all he asks of, of us is, is to trust him, to believe in him. So maybe for some of you in this room, the question is, have I truly believed in what Jesus has done for me? Do I believe that Jesus is who he said he is? He's the lamb of God that, that came to, to, to take away the sins of the world and that one day he will return and he will take believers into heaven. And then one day he will come and he will be the judge. He will strike down all the wickedness and evil that hurts us so badly, and that one day we will stand in the presence of Jesus forever and ever, worshiping our King. So that the tribulation martyrs, right? They're they're in white robes, and and the hundred forty four thousand they're they're sealed with with God's seal, because God signed, sealed, and delivered them. But God also does that for us, and He invites us not just to wait. For that day, God actually invites us to participate currently in the comfort that he provides as the lamb who was slain. He provides us closeness. He provides us our needs being met, spiritual needs. He, he shows us that one day we don't just stand in floating clouds and listen to harps. We actually get to serve. We get to worship together. We get to be the body coming and, and worshiping God through our diversity and our gifts and, and where we've come from and all of our stories. It's all just moments to, to be shown that, that Jesus is worthy of our worship. These are promises made to us and they will be fulfilled. As I think about Revelation, I, I think about how God is just giving us a picture of something to inspire and to encourage. My favorite movies of all time are Lord of the Rings. All right, I'm a pastor, so that probably makes sense. But, right, I love 
Lord of the Rings. I love the books. I've seen all the movies uh, on the same day, multiple times. Extended version, bring it on, right? I love them. There's this moment in the Fellowship of the Ring, though, where they are in the mines of Moria, and they're crossing the bridge of Khazad-dum, and Gandalf the Grey turns, and he takes his staff and his sword, and he stabs it into the ground and says, you shall not pass, as he's fighting this Balrog, this demon. And the demon goes over the edge, and everything seems right. But then the Balrog whips up and catches Gandalf's foot, and he falls over the edge, saying, fly, you fools. And I'm not gonna lie to you. I told this to my wife. I cry legitimately every time Gandalf goes over the edge. In fact, I cry like every time Gandalf speaks, but that's beside the point. My wife's like, I know who I married, it's fine, right? But Gandalf goes over the edge and I weep every time. I weep with Sam and Mary and Pippin. I feel lost like Frodo. And yet I know something that that they didn't know. See, I know that Gandalf will he will return in the two towers. That Gandalf the Grey won't come back. Gandalf the White will come back. And even in the midst of the pain and the sorrow that I experience in this moment of Gandalf going over the edge, I'm not without hope because I know the future. The future promises impact my present experience. Why does God give us promises and show us what's coming? Because again, the future promises impact our present experiences. That we don't grieve without hope, that we don't go through hardships without hope. And even looking at the tribulation, the the worst time in all of human history, the, the wrath will come down like it's never been seen before. And it will be terrifying and horrible. And yet we know that there's a reason for it. And ultimately we know that God is faithful to his people, and to his promises. So how does those future promises impact our present experience right now? We get to participate in specific ways together, not just of of the mission of making disciples of all nations, but also we have the opportunity and the ability to worship God as a foretaste of what's to come. See, one day we'll be with Jesus and all of us will be there. All who put their name in Jesus and believe will be there, worshiping Jesus forever and eternity. And right now, why do we worship? It's a present promise that impacts our current experience, that when we worship together, we remind one another, God is faithful to his people and his promises. He is worthy of worship, and so that's why we come and we worship. Now we've kind of tailored this sermon or this this morning's service specifically to respond to that. That because God is faithful to his people and his promises and because worship is an opportunity for us to remind one another that God will do what he said he's going to do and that one day we will have perfect peace in the presence of our shepherd. The best way for us to respond to this passage is to declare that to him and to one another. So I'm gonna pray for us. And the rest of the time, we're just gonna be spending worshiping our King Jesus. Maybe asking Jesus, what have you asked me to do to participate in your promises? But ultimately, getting to worship him for who he is and also what he's done. Let's pray. 
Well, Father, just thank you. Thank you that, that you are so good to us. God, that you are faithful to us, that in the midst of, of seemingly no loyalty and, and broken promises and pain and hardship, God, that we can put our absolute confidence, our trust and our future in your hands. God, that because we know you are faithful to us, it gives us hope and security that we get to follow you and do whatever you ask us to do because we know that in you is life and security. God, I'm so grateful that you keep your promises to the Israelites. I'm so glad that you keep your promises to the church. I'm so glad that you keep your promises because you, God, are trustworthy and true. You are the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. God, as we respond in worship this morning, God, I pray that it is just a glimpse of our future, getting to worship you, every tribe and tongue and nation before your throne, ascribing that you are worthy because you are. God, we love you and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.